delivered last week when I was out at my immersion in Gonzaga. So a lot of what I'm sharing today, I shared in that class, a lot of the things that I've added to what I did out there, I picked up from some of the events that we did. Each one of us had to come in with a spiritual practice from our tradition to share with the rest of the group. And we had about 15 of us that shared different things. Uh, throughout the semester, I'll probably add a couple of the other ones that some of the others had shared that were excellent. We'll do those as we go forward on that piece. Of course, everybody was wondering, because I had to go to the Home Depot out there and buy a 20-pound bag of rocks. Couldn't get 10-pound bags. So I had to get a 20-pound bag of rocks. Everybody kept asking me, says, what are you going to be doing with the rocks? I said, well, we're going to be doing the ancient Jewish spiritual practice of stoning, <laughs> which my Jewish friend at uh, Gonzaga loved. But uh, that's kind of where we were. Two weeks ago... When Rachel was up here, she kind of opened up talking about forgiveness in the extended family. And we had a discussion about forgiveness and forgetting. And I was going to pick up at the beginning of today into that before we kind of dive into more about forgiveness within the family. And then I know JB shared some last week some things that uh, happened within his life when he was really talking about forgiveness in the community. And a lot of these things are going to blend together as we go. But I wanted to come back to, at the very beginning that we talked about, forgive and forget and forgiveness and forgetting. I had the pleasure of being in the class with, uh, I don't know which way you say it, Dr. Father Tran or Father Dr. Tran. He is a Jesuit priest who teaches and has a doctorate at Gonzaga. He is a Vietnamese uh, descent and has been at Gonzaga for over 30 years. But one of the things that he was talking about is that forgiveness and forgetting are two completely different things. And that with forgiveness, there is a release that we'll talk about with that piece. And even though we say that we can forget, really and truly, that is not the case and we'll get into that a little bit more here in a second but part of the forgiveness component of it is that forgiveness is much more of a long-term solution and it has a long-term benefits to us the most part of the things that dr tran talked about was that sometimes in the short term that the short-term things that we have in our mind are really polluted by our own subjectivity, and that sometimes we need to move beyond just what's happened in the moment or what's happening in the short term because it is clouded still by the emotion, by our own subjectivity, and it makes it difficult to be able to move on. And so in that instance, it's one of those ones that part of the forgiveness component of forgiving and forgetting is that forgiveness is the long-term solution. And again, it's not something that just is a one-time and you're done. We've kind of talked about that, but it's something that's going to continue to happen over and over and over and over again. And each one of us are kind of in a continuous state of becoming. We're constantly changing. We're always moving into something else. Like the cells in our body, we've been in this class about 11 minutes. We probably have already reproduced uh, thousands and thousands of cells. And those cells are never the same combination. Even though some of you have been in this class each week, all of us are not in the same combination of people that are in this class. 
We're also not in the same state of being in class each week that we've been in here. One week we may have been feeling bad. One week we may be feeling good. We're never going to be in the exact same state twice. We're constantly changing. We're constantly becoming. And so forgiveness, again, is a long term. One of the things that he shared in class is that, like I say, he is, he's a Jesuit priest, Father Tran. He's been doing this for over 30-something years at Gonzaga. <laughs> And he had a nun that was under his parish that had come to him. And she was talking about, says, I'm really, really struggling being able to talk to God. I feel like there's a block in me, and I can't figure it out. And they worked together, and they worked together, and they worked together. And it was, he said it was around six months. And then at about the six-month level, something broke through. And she was struggling with the thought of God the Father. And that is where the block came in. The word Father was her block. And deep down into her subconscious, she had suppressed that her father had abused her. And so when she heard the word Father, she could not equate with good. And God the Father was the block. And she had suppressed that in her so far. And one of the things that, that they mentioned is like, you know, God can heal you. And her reply back is, is that I know God can heal me. I'm just not ready yet. And that is okay. It is okay to not be ready yet. And that is where you keep going. It's like, okay, it's understand. But that part about forgetting is not something that you can just ignore. We think we have forgotten, but just as she had, she had suppressed it so deep into her subconscious that it was affecting everything that she did that was around the word father. Even though she didn't recognize the connection until they dug deep enough and had time enough to go through it, that subconscious was affecting everything that she did. And it affects us. We may not realize how deep that is. And that's part of where freedom prayer, I know, helps people to address some of these things, is that we push it so deep into our subconscious that we think we have forgotten. Yet, it is affecting things without our knowledge. And that's where part of is God wants us to go into that subconscious. He wants us to go in there and he wants to set us free. He wants to set us free. Now, Dr. Tran put these notes up here. And this is kind of where we're going to be for the rest of today. Is he talked about that first and foremost, when it comes to forgiveness, we need to own it. We need to name it. We need to let it go. But we've had a void. We need to let the light in. Jesus in the Gospels told the parable of a woman who had some evil demons in her house and she swept and she cleaned it out, but she didn't put anything back in. And then worse demons came in than the ones that she had cleaned out. So it's kind of one of these things, a part of it that we want to look more into today, that part of the forgiveness is it's not just letting go and getting it out, but it's replacing it and letting things come in. Thoughts or questions so far?
Okay. This is where 1 John 1 9, I believe, comes in. And when we read this, John's writing, he says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. So if we confess our sins, if we own it and we name it and we're willing to let it go, he is willing to forgive us. And in replace of that, he is going to purify us and give us the gift of being purified from all unrighteousness. So if we're willing to let it go, we're willing to name it, own it, and let it go, he's willing to come in and replace it by purifying us, by putting something holy in its place. And that's, again, kind of what we're talking about. So own it, name it, let it go, and then let the light of God come in. Let his purifying come in. Let his spirit come into us. A couple of weeks ago, Josh asked us in, in, from the pulpit, what was our favorite book of the Bible? Did any of y'all remember that day? Mm-hmm. What were some of your favorite books? Colossians. Colossians? I've always been a big Job guy. Job? <laughs> <laughs> And boy, do we ever have some forgiveness and forgetting in his part. Yeah. I mean, you know, as a, as, as a, as, you know, as an Enneagram one, which, you know, I'm, I'm like the poster child, right? James. James. Because he says it straight out. This is what you got to do. There's a, there's a, there's a recipe. You follow it. Right? That's it. So I love James. Oh yeah. Great. You know, Someone talk about the tongue. Faith without works is dead. Someone mentioned Proverbs. Did you mention Proverbs? Yeah. Somebody who had a right to complain was David. He's being a man after God's own heart, but he's being hunted by Saul. Yet his beauty of questioning, his beauty of still being in touch with God throughout those and the the lamentation part that he puts into his prayers, incredible, a lot of those things that he puts in there. Someone else? Favorite book? It's a hard one, but I've always really liked Romans. Sometimes I get mad at it, but, but <laughs> it's, it just is, yeah, it's, it's a good one. I have a feeling that a lot of people in the first century got mad at Paul. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, he did have to kind of scoot out of Greece there because, you know, <laughs> hey, you know, you better, you should better leave because... If you come back tomorrow, it ain't going to go good for you. Yeah, I see Paul as an in-your-face kind of person. He is not going to let you get away with anything, which he doesn't in his letters. He is very straightforward. He's pretty, pretty much in there. And when Josh was asking, he also asked, what was your favorite gospel? And for me, my favorite book, my favorite gospel are the same thing. It is John. Always has been. But really, it came along when I was in college. It's kind of like, You read Matthew and you get to hear the lineage, the Jewish lineage. You see the tie-ins from Adam all the way to Christ. Luke, he's a doctor, he's a scholar, so it has a scholarly kind of component to it. Mark is very compact. You get the nuts and bolts. You don't get a lot of fluff. But for me, John was beautiful because this is where we really see the emotion. We see the character. 
we really get a great picture of Jesus. And that was one of the reasons that I always loved John, is that this is a chance to really see who he is. One of my favorite chapters in John is John chapter 11, which is the raising of Lazarus. Now, give you an idea of what was going on beforehand. In John 10, Jesus had been in Jerusalem. He had been speaking around the city. And he had gotten into arguments and, and trouble with the Pharisees, particularly when he made the statement that I and the Father are one. And the Pharisees said, this is blasphemy. He's saying that he is God, which he was. And they wanted to stone him. And so he had to flee the city with his disciples. But at that time, he knew that some of his dearest friends, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, lived just outside of Jerusalem in Bethany. And Lazarus was ill. And while they were still out of town, he, he was talking to his disciples in 10. He said, you know, that Lazarus is asleep. And his disciples says, oh, yeah, that's great. You know, he's sick. He needs to rest. And Jesus was like, no, I didn't mean that he was having earthly sleep. I mean, he is dead. And we need to go back. And they're like, well, he's dead. What, why are we going to go back for? And Jesus said, I'm glad that this took place, that he has died while we were not there, because I need you to see God's glory. And so they go back. And his disciples are like, well, he's probably going to get killed, so we might as well go with him. And so they decided to go back. So when we get into chapter 11, he's getting near Bethany, which is like two miles outside of Jerusalem. And Martha hears that he's on the road and coming in, and so she runs out to meet him. And she gets to Jesus and she says, Jesus, you know, if you'd only been here, you could have healed him. You could have healed my brother Lazarus. But she says, I know that you still have the power to do something. And so she goes back. And her sister Mary was still in the house with all the mourners. And then when Martha came back and said that Jesus was waiting outside the city limits, she ran out. And all the mourners were like, hey, something's going on. You know, Mary is, is, is taking off. She's probably going to the tomb to, to grieve and to wail and to, and to mourn. And so they follow also. And when Mary gets out there, she sees Jesus. She bows at his feet. And again, it's like, Lord, if you'd only been here, you could have saved him. You could have saved him. And he saw Mary. He saw all of the people and the anguish and the mourning and how much they had loved Lazarus and the pain that they were in. And it says that Jesus was moved in the Spirit. And probably the verse that most people remember from John chapter 11 is verse 35 where it says Jesus wept. And he, seeing that, you know, and the people were like, man, this guy heals people. If he had only been here, he could have done something. And it says that Jesus asked him to take him to the tomb. But to me, the key is verses 39 and 40. Jesus gets to the tomb, and a tomb may be similar to this picture, and he tells them, move the stone. Move the stone. Martha's like, Lord, he's been in the grave for three day, four days. His body's already started decaying. He is, the odor is going to be overwhelming. And Jesus turned to her and said, did I not say that if you only believed, you would see the glory of God? So each of you has a stone in your hand. And if some of you just came in and don't have one, uh, there's a bucket back here. You can go get your... Go get you a rock. But in your hand, you have a stone. 
And Jesus is telling us that if we would only move this stone, move what is blocking us from seeing his glory. And for me, when I started thinking about that, the journey that I've been on with this class and with Dr. Furch's class was forgiveness. And there were things that were blocking me from seeing the glory of God. And Jesus is waiting me, waiting for me to say, move that stone. In Dr. Furch's book, he talks about the difficult relationship that he had with his father. His father, when he was very young, was an alcoholic. He had cheated on his mother, been unfaithful. They divorced. She kicked him out. And so it changed not only his relationship with his dad, but it also changed his mother to where she was a person he said that he had never heard words from her lips of any cursing whatsoever. And one night her father showed up. He was drunk. He was supposed to have the kids. She cursed him, ran him out of the house, and like, you don't ever come back again. And it was like he was crushed to see this taking place. And eventually his mother and his dad reconciled. They remarried and are still married today. But he still had a very tough relationship with his father. And it was difficult for him to kind of get past that. And he's married. He's going home. They're in Montana. And in Montana, you fish, you hunt. And even though he was an athlete himself, he was not a good hunter. And he talked about that his dad would be frustrated with him when he went out on hunts. But he said that morning when his wife and them come, his dad woke him up early that morning. He was tapping. He was like, son, you know, it's time to get up. I've got breakfast ready. Come on in. So his dad had the breakfast ready. And while he was eating the breakfast that his dad prepared, he's like, son, I've got your boots. I've got the, the wool socks and everything that you're going to need today. I've got your jacket that you're going to need. I'm going to finish loading. So his dad's out there. He's loading up all the stuff, and he has everything prepared for, for Shannon to go out. And then they go out on the hunt, and they had a good conversation along the way, and when he gets there, he talks about that they were at the hunt, and he was setting him up for the shot and everything, and he talked about that his dad was so gentle. He had got the gun. He had everything prepared. He lined it up. He had it sighted. He's sitting there next to him. He's like, just take your time and breathe and take the shot. But throughout all of that, his dad had never said, I'm sorry. He never had said he's sorry. Yet, his dad was trying through those actions to make the statement that he was sorry for what had happened. In my life, I can relate to kind of what he was talking about. Um, my wife comes from a very peaceful family. I come from what would have, if we were Italian, we would definitely fit in completely. If you remember the end of the scene of the movie Moonstruck where everybody's screaming and yelling and bounding tables, that is my family. That's who I was grown up with. Uh, but when I was 12, uh, in the seventh grade, I may have been five feet tall and I may have weighed 110 pounds. I was tiny. My father was a, was a factory worker at BF Goodrich. He was 6'3", went about 225, 230. He was a big man, he was a strong man. And we were in an argument. I had a pair of tennis shoes, they were an off-brand which is why he thought the argument was taking place. But in truth, that was part of the problem. But 
the other part of it was is that they were not well made, so there was a seam that ran between the rubber part. They were kind of like Converse, but they weren't Converse, but they had a seam. And so it was rubbing right across my feet, and I was bleeding, and blisters were coming up. And he's telling me, well, you can just wear a Band-Aid. I'm like, Dad, I can't get a Band-Aid on my pinky toe, uh, you know, and I can't wear Band-Aids, Then plus they sweat, they fall off, and it's still getting rubbed, you know. And then I said something I shouldn't have said, and he was sitting right here. I was on the couch, and I got up. My arm stayed there, but my body went that way. And I went into the floor screaming in pain. I was in enormous pain. Something had snapped. My mother comes in. She's like, what have you done? What's going on? You know, if you're lying to me that he's done something to you, you're going to wish you had been dead. And so I think she gave me a couple of Tylenol. I went to bed, cried, cried myself to sleep. I was afraid, and I was hurting. So the next morning, my dad has to go to the early shift. He's already gone out of the house. My mother comes in. She's not in a good mood, which wasn't unusual. But she wasn't in a good mood, and she's like, if you're lying to me, if you're lying that you're, you're hurt, we're about to go to the doctor, and you're going to wish you were dead if you're lying to me. Your father did not sleep last night. So we go to the doctor, get the x-rays and stuff. He puts me in a half cast and wraps me up. And she says, okay, we're going to school. And I'm like, I'm going to school? You want me to go to school? And I was terrified. I get to school, and right before I get out of the car, she says, if you tell anyone that your father abused you and he gets police called on him, you're not coming home. So I get into the first class, and of course, I'm in the seventh grade. Everybody wants to know what happens when you have a cast on. So I lied. I lied. I said, we were wrestling and I got hurt. I couldn't really concentrate to my right hand. I'm right-handed, I couldn't write. So I was miserable that day anyway. I was still kind of shaken from what had taken place the night before. And we were in junior high, so we had seven periods. I was in six periods, getting near the end of class. And the PA comes on and calls into the teacher and says, uh, Joel needs to come to the office. His dad's here to check him out. And I sat there and I froze. I'm like, I, I don't want to go to the office. I don't want to go there. I, I can't see him. I don't want to see him. And the teacher's like, did you hear me? You're, you're checking out. And without a word, I just put my stuff in the books. I had my head down. I went into the office. I didn't look up. And he was over there. But when I looked up, his face was crushed. I could just see the pain that he was in. But I was terrified. I was so scared. And he says, I'm here to pick you up. The doctor has looked at your, your wrist, and all the cartilage is torn in your wrist, so we've got to put you in a full cast. So we leave, but I kept my distance. I didn't want to get him in. He had a pickup truck, and I sat as close to that door as I possibly could. But I could see he didn't say a word. I didn't say a word. We got to the doctor. He put me in a full cast. I didn't say anything. And then when we got through, he said, I need to make one stop. And then he took me to the shoe store to buy a new pair of tennis shoes. But no time did we ever say I was sorry. And that was just not a word that I heard in my family is that I'm sorry. 
Yet I could see what pain he was in. I could see the pain that I was in. And it did. It took a while for me to get over the thought that he had hurt me, even though I was part of the problem, and I helped do the tearing with the, my running away. But it caused a rift for a little while. And eventually, we became closer together, but the words, I'm sorry, did not come out. And so part of this class that I was in, Dr. Furch comes forward and says, you know, one of the things that you've got to do in this class, you are required to go to somebody and that you have wronged, and you need to ask them for forgiveness. And so it took me a couple of months, at least two months, to be able to do these steps. And these are the things that I needed to do. I needed to go in and I needed to name it. I needed to own it. I needed to name it. And I needed to name it in the way they would describe it. I need to name it in their terms, not mine. And then I need to sit down with them and say, okay, tell me how you have been affected by what I have done. And then ask for their forgiveness. Again, naming it in their terms. Naming what they said I have done and asking for forgiveness. And then that last step, commit to change and continue to commit to change. So again, I said in my family, I'm sorry, was not something that was really heard. And the struggle that I had was that I knew that I had the same issues within my own family. My oldest son and I butted heads from the time he turned about 13 years old and moving forward. And we would argue to the point of shouting, which bothered my youngest son, which bothered my wife. But one day he came to me and he said, I don't feel like you love me. I feel like you love our youngest son more, you love your, my brother more than me, and I don't feel like you care, you really care about me. And so it, it did, it took me up to two months to be able to have the meeting, but I called all of them into the living room, and I had been praying, I'd been meditating, I'd been thinking about it for almost two months, and I sat down, and I, and I turned to him first, and I said, Dylan, you told me that I have made you feel like you are not loved, you are not wanted. And I need for you to forgive me for that. I turned to my youngest son and I said, I have made this household to where you've been afraid because we have been so screaming at the top of our lungs at each other that you're upset and you can't even concentrate. You can't feel comfortable in your own home because we can't stop arguing. And I apologize for that. And then I turned to my wife, Tracy. And I'm like, when we first married, we said we did not want a home that was full of anger and full of shouting. We wanted a peaceful home because I grew up in one where I woke up every morning hearing my mother chew my dad out before he left to work. And we wanted a peaceful home. And I had not done that. And I had to go to her. And I said, I am so sorry that I have not made our home a peaceful home. And I made the commitment that I was going to do the things that I needed to do to make this work. And I'm still having to do it. 
forgiveness is not a one-time thing. It was not saying it on that day and it's done. I have to continually do it. And some of the things that I put in is that part of this class, I've asked you to start meditating and journaling, and I have been doing that consistently. And that has been one step that has helped me that I needed to learn to let go and that my relationship with him is much more important than my own pride. And pride was keeping me in the way. So these are the steps that you should be thinking about going through. And that these are the steps that we want to look at is that we need to own it, we need to name it, but we need to name it in their terms. Their terms, not our terms. We need to ask that person, tell me what this has done to you. What my actions have done to you. And then again, name it in their terms. Name it in the way that they said that it's impacted them and ask for that forgiveness. And then continue to make the commitment to change. So again, just as was said by Dr. Tran, own it, name it, let it go, and let the light in. Let God in. The last thing that he shared with is he's, we, we'd been talking about the examine. Now I'm going to play some music here in a minute. But he talked about that when we start doing the examine is that first we have to prepare. We have to think about getting ourselves in the mind to come before God's presence. We need a place that's peaceful where nobody's going to bother you. And if somebody would, close that back door back there for just a moment so that the noise in the hallway doesn't start here in a minute and interrupt us. And that you have to get yourself into a posture and a position. So in this room, whatever position that you want to get in that makes you the most comfortable, get in that position. Usually meditation, it's two feet on the floor, but whatever you're the most comfortable in. And when you're in your own home, whatever you're the most comfortable in. It doesn't have to be crisscross applesauce on the floor. You can lay down. I have a recliner that I do, and I sit crisscross in the recliner because it's just kind of comfortable, and I can sit in there quiet in our room, and I don't hear much of anything. But it's whatever is comfortable for you that's going to put you in the best place to feel God's presence, and that's what we want to do. We want to ask God to come into our presence. We want to petition Him for grace that we can feel His grace covering us for what we're doing. And today, I want you to think back to John 11, 39 and 40. And as you're thinking through the prayer, as you're thinking through meditation here in just a minute, Jesus said, move the stone. Move the stone. Now, when I originally talked about this class and talked about this lesson today with JB, I said, you know, I thought we would get the cross from next door and then say, you know, I want you to think about somebody that you need to go to ask for forgiveness and bring it to, bring it to Christ and bring it to the cross. But then last week I was with at Gonzaga, and Tran Mayai is a Vietnamese artist, and I'll pull up this thing here for you. And her grandmother and her mother fled Vietnam in 1975. And they fled to the United States after the fall of Saigon. And she talked about that when her grandmother had passed, they found a suitcase underneath her bed, and in it were hundreds of documents and letters. Because when they fled, they had to leave everything behind. They didn't want her. Her grandfather was a soldier for the South Korea for the South Vietnamese Army. He had to change his name. They had to have no documents that tied him back to to the South Vietnam, or they would have killed him and everybody with him. 
But in that suitcase, she found sort of what it looks like a what we would call a driver's license, but it was really the Vietnamese passport. And on the back of it, it had her grandmother's fingerprints, her thumbprints on the back of it. And one of the things that she talked about is, is that she had all these documents and that she needed to sit with it. She needed to have time to ponder. She needed to have time to reflect and think about what to do with this. And this portrait is of her grandmother. And she took her grandmother's fingerprints and she redid them over and over and over again to make this portrait of her grandmother. But the part that was for me is, is that she said, you need to sit with it. So I'm going to ask you to take that stone with you. I'm going to ask you to sit with it, to take the time to sit with it and to ponder and to think. So we're going to take just a few minutes, but I want you to keep that scripture in your mind. Jesus said, remove the stone. If you truly believe, you will see the glory of God. And whether it's forgiveness for somebody or it's something else in your life that is blocking you from seeing God's glory, God wants to come in and fill that void that we have. He wants to fill it. But I want you to take this rock and I want you to reflect on it. I want you to keep it with you this week. And it may take you more than a week. Like I said, it took me two months before I was able to do it. But I want you to think about this. And I want you to take this with you and reflect and think about it. I'm going to play some music. We'll talk through the prayer of the examine for today. And just take some time to reflect and to think about this. So we're going to ask God to come into our presence. So invite God in. Invite Him into this room. Invite Him into your heart. Invite Him here to be with us at this moment. Take that rock that you have in your hand, that stone that's in your hand. Keep it in your hand and, and look into it. And if there's something that's blocking you from, from seeing God, concentrate on that. If there's someone that you need to go to to ask for forgiveness, concentrate on them. Ask for God's grace as we leave and move forward. Ask Him to pour His grace over us and to guide us on this journey.
Think about John 11, 39 and 40. Think on Jesus telling us to remove the stone. If we remove the stone, we will see the glory of God. Take away the stone if you only believe you will see the glory of God. Remove the stone. Look forward to tomorrow and look for opportunities to shine God's glory. God, thank you for the time that we've been together today. We ask you to bless us and keep us in your hands. We ask this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Keep your stone with you. Take some time to reflect. Next week, we move into forgiveness of the self, which is very difficult in itself. Thank you so much for your attention today.